Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing of the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same attitude of mind Christ had, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ, uh, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Thank you very much, Clive. Thank you. I could never do justice to all of that uh, in on one week, so which is why we're spending a few weeks on this. So today I just want to concentrate on the first few verses of Philippians chapter 2 this morning. At the beginning of this year, uh, which was January, I think, uh, we introduced to you a text that we were going to carry through our year, and that text was Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19, where Jesus invited his uh, people to come and follow me. And you may have grabbed one of these cards, and you may have hidden it, or you might still have it around, maybe in your Bible. There's a few of those cards still on the table if you've joined us since January, and you want to grab one of those, because we want to just continue to have a think about uh, what it means to follow Jesus. And so this look at Philippians 2 is going to be in that sort of lens of what it looks like to follow Jesus. This personal call that Jesus makes to individuals just simply to come and follow me. Now, if you've got, had any engagement with the Bible, you'll know those early stories of when Jesus uh, first uh, started his ministry, and uh, one of his first jobs was to try and gather together his, his 12 disciples, his 12 followers. And uh, as you read the text, you see I'm sure it wasn't random, but it just appears to be that as he was walking around, then he called certain people. You you may remember that he called Simon, later to be known as Peter, Simon and Andrew. You'll find that in Mark chapter 1. He called James and John as well, right at the very beginning, to come and follow me. They were changed from being fishermen to being followers in that moment. They, They left their nets at once. They left their nets without delay. They got up 
and followed him. There was no second thought about whether or not they should or working out the consequences of it or counting the cost of it. They just went and followed him as soon as he invited them. In Mark chapter 2, we see the calling of Levi, of of Matthew, who he turned from a, a tax collector into a thrower of parties. You know, that was the first thing he did after Jesus had invited him to follow him. He threw a party for all of his friends and, of course, invited Jesus to be the, the guest at that party as well. And then in John chapter 1, you'll see how, how Philip was called from being someone who was interested in Jesus to someone who was totally invested in the life of Jesus and followed him as well. And that is how it starts. That's how it starts for everyone. It's the simple invitation, come, follow me. It's a personal, individual call that we get to respond to as well. There's no magic prayer we have to say before we get up and follow. There's no exam to pass. There's no hoop to jump through. There's no form to sign. There's no agreement to agree to. It's a simple, am I going to get up and follow Jesus? Am I going to start this journey of trying to to become all that Jesus longs for me to be? Come, follow me. It's a simple invitation that demands a very simple response from all those who hear it. Be my disciple. Be my apprentice. Come and learn from me what it looks like to live in this world like me, like Jesus. It's personal. And most of us have still got the old plates on, haven't we? Have you progressed from an L to a P on your back now as a follower of Jesus? I don't even know. What what does P mean now? Does it mean anything? Is it provisional or something? What does it mean? I, I don't even know what it means, but most of us have got, got an L on because we're still learning, but we're still responding to this call, this individualized call. Come, follow me. Tim, come and follow me. That's all I'm asking of you. What will your response to it be? You also read early on in the ministry of Jesus that, that when two of John the Baptist's disciples started following Jesus, Jesus asked them, what do you want? And the weirdest of replies, I think, in the Bible, you'll find they say, where do you live? Where are you staying? It seems to me a weird response to Jesus saying, what do you want? They want to know where he is. And Jesus just says, well, come and see. He doesn't give them an address. He doesn't give them a, a directions. He doesn't give them a destination. He just says, come and see. Follow me. And you'll see... That where I'm staying. You'll see how my life pans out. That's all it is. Interestingly, right at the end, of course, when Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus asked Mary in the garden, who? Who are you looking for? Not what are you looking for? Because now, post-resurrection, this is clearly about Jesus, isn't it? This is about the person of Jesus that has been so compelling during that time that he's asking that question to those who have been on the journey. Who are you looking for? No aimless wonder, no stroll, but a clear focus for followers of Jesus to say, Jesus, it's you that I'm following, and I'm going to turn my face towards you. That's what the invitation's about. Are you going to turn your face towards him? Are you just going to have eyes for him only? And is he going to shape how you live your life? how you respond at work, how you, you parent, how, you, how you're married, how you, how you build relationships with people, how you neighbor your neighbors. Is that really going to impact you? Come, follow me. There's a direction and there's a purpose to it. 
Now, the word disciple, it, you'll find it, I'm told anyway, 269 times in the New Testament. It's one of those facts that I haven't checked, by the way. So if you want to check it later on today, have a check of it. The word disciple, it's used a lot of times, okay? But the word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. There's a distinct difference between hiding behind the label of being a Christian or being a disciple. And it's being a disciple that Jesus calls us to. See, we're not invited to receive a title. You're invited to accept a challenge. Jesus didn't want you just to wear a label. He wants, to give, he wants you to give your life. That's the call of come, follow me. And being a follower of Jesus is clearly about obedience to him and him only. It runs counter to the culture. It fights daily with the aspiration for self-fulfillment. It battles constantly with the desire to be the hero rather than the demand to be a servant. Because when you're invited to follow Jesus, you leave your nets behind. You come out from your tax collector's booth and you live a transformed life. It doesn't mean you don't go back to fishing. It doesn't mean that you don't go back to tax collecting. Of course, those are still generally honorable occupations, I think but it means you've got to prepare to leave them behind and to follow Jesus with the invitation that he gives to you as well. To invest your life in becoming like him and to start living for him. And as the first followers found out, very much to their own personal cost, you can only do that from a position and a posture of humility. It's the only way that you can follow Jesus. It's not a shortcut to greatness. It's a step-by-step walk of grace. That's what he offers you when you follow him. So we walk with a limp. We're beggars desperately trying to find bread. We're dependent on the grace of God that enables us to discover his purposes and live in the way that he chooses. And when we do that, we provoke the world to look at Jesus. When... The followers of Jesus look like him. The world has to take notice. It has to begin to ask some questions. Why do you live that way? Why is the humility of Jesus in you? And I think that's something we've seen in Queen Elizabeth and certainly what has been highlighted so much in in the last week in all the the tributes that have been paid to her. I'm sure you've heard them, haven't you? You've heard the tributes. Her resolute sense of duty and responsibility. Her commitment to public service. Her her generous, self-deprecating good humor. Her her willingness to withhold her personal opinions most of the time. They all start from somewhere, don't they? They all start somewhere. They don't just happen. And of course, Queen Elizabeth II, born in a radio age, crowned in a television age, and died in the age when even CGI can help her to have a marmalade sandwich with a bear for tea. But through all the changes and all the personal challenges that she has faced, she modelled a very different kind of leadership that we haven't seen too much in the public sphere in recent years. And that is what draws people towards her still today. Of course, the Queen did voice an opinion. Once a year, she was able to voice an opinion on Christmas Day. And she wrote that speech. No one else could interfere with it. 
And in one of the broadcasts, she said this, At the heart of our faith stand not a preoccupation with our own welfare and comfort, but the concepts of service and of sacrifice as shown in the life and teachings of the one who made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant. She was a follower of Jesus. Heading up what some would see as a flawed institution, but she was a follower of Jesus. Not perfect, but step by step, choosing each day to walk his way and to follow his example. But of course, you never follow Jesus alone. You can't follow Jesus alone, I would suggest. We're invited and called to walk together. And perhaps that is the greatest witness into our world today. In our individual, fractured, lonely, divided society, perhaps the greatest witness that we, the church, could have is that we're doing this together. And if you don't mind me saying so, we're a pretty mixed bunch, aren't we? If anybody would like to come and stand here right now and just look down, please, please, you're very welcome to come and look down at everyone here. Some of you are just looking at the back of the heads of somebody, aren't they? And the back of their heads look perfect, but when you're standing here, it's a different story. What a witness the church can be and still can be, and maybe that is our greatest opportunity still today. In a world that is tending to sideline faith, we can say, look, we're following Jesus together. We're trying to seek and serve him and in humility live like him each day. And I think that's what Paul is writing about in Philippians chapter 2. You know, that amazing um, passage in Philippians 2 about Jesus mustn't distract us from what he says in the first few verses leading up to it. Paul, in chapter 2, verse 1, he's got a therefore. He loves his therefores, Paul, doesn't he? Romans 12, another example. Therefore, given everything I've said so far, in Philippians' case in chapter 1, given everything I've said so far, therefore, as a result of all that I've said, you have become united with Christ. You have been given the full measure of his love. You have received the free gift of the Holy Spirit to be at work in you. But it doesn't and it can't stop there. There's another step. We're called as individuals, but we follow together. And I think that's the thrust of what Paul has to say to us today. At the heart of the Christian story is us and we, not I and me. See, right from the very beginning, God made it very clear that we couldn't manage on our own. That's what he said, didn't he? It's not good for the man to be alone. And he designed us to live in relationship right from the very beginning. And even though that was and still is damaged by sin, the cross demonstrated for us again that there is hope to hold all this together. That Jesus held out his hands to embrace us together. To say that even though things go wrong and society is fractured and your life may be, may be unsure and uncertain, we can do this. I call you together as his people to bring shalom into our world, to bring a sense of harmony 
back in, to resolve the discord, to bring the whole universe back to himself in harmony with the Creator. And that's why he calls the church, I believe, you and me, to be the starting point for that to happen. To be a witness to this broken, individualistic world around us. To be, as Paul says, like-minded. To have the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. And through that, Paul says, my joy will be complete. And Jesus' joy is complete, isn't it? Because that's what he prayed, that we might be one. And then when we're one, then his joy is complete. And the full measure of his joy is within us when that happens. We can have the mindset of Christ. I mean, Paul is writing to a congregation just like ours, in a setting just like ours. I know it was in Philippi. I know it was 2,000 years ago. But it was full of the same people who had the same challenges in their world as we do as well. They were living in a world full of turmoil, full of confusion, where it was easy to become isolated and alone, separated from others. But he believed, Paul believed, that we could sing a new song together where everyone plays a part and has a voice in that whole. Have you ever been part of a choir? Have you ever been allowed to be part of a choir? (laughs) Or you just mimed, perhaps, uh, that was it. But there's all sorts of choirs around, aren't there? All sorts of music to be sung. I mean, there's a a rock choir and a community choir and a barbershop choir and a male voice choir and good choirs and terrible choirs. There's choirs all over the place, but it's bringing people together to try and sing a song that sounds better than a solo performance. Because being a follower of Jesus is not a solo performance. It's a united, common sharing, same love, one in spirit, one in mind, looking to the interests of others type of concert. And yet it's so easy to think that it's just about me. It's just a, a thing that I do, my way, my opinions. And if we're not careful, we become a strident voice rather than a voice that's part of the whole. And that demands that we become contributors and not consumers. It demands that we contribute what we have been given so that the whole becomes even more tuneful, even more harmonious. Because all of us have a part to play. Every one of us here today, those of you watching online, those who are unable to be here today, everyone has a part to play. Jesus calls you to follow because you have something unique to contribute to the noise of the church. Oh, sorry, to the the harmony of the church. You've got something to offer. You've got a note to sing that adds to the whole. That's why Jesus chose 12. I mean, it's the perfect number for a lovely scale, the 12-note scale. Is that, have I just made that up, or I think that's a thing, isn't it? I'm sure it's a thing, the 12-note scale. It's the number of notes on a, on a piano, isn't it? Is it 12? Yeah, it's 12, isn't it? Thank you, Rob. Rob agrees with me, so I'm fine with that. 12 semitones. There we are, Rob. Thank you very much. I'm right. There are 12 semitones in any octave. That's right. Fantastic. Why? Why did you choose 12? I've just made that up, but it sounds plausible, doesn't it? And so maybe you've got an F-sharp to offer. Or a B-flat maybe some days. (laughs) But together, 
we get to be this, this sound that creates this, this music to a world that needs to hear it. The Bible says everyone has a gift, a means of grace to offer, a note to sing. You have something to say. Harmony is the result of different notes coming together. And there may be discord at times, but there's always a resolution that comes because we're aiming for that harmony that we're called to. A better sound than just you singing your note, to be honest. How did the person next to you sing today? Were they good? You could tell them if they were good. If you don't tell them they're good, they'll know they're bad. So it's okay. So you can just go with that. But see how we function better together. Recognizing, valuing, affirming, encouraging one another. We live in harmony as an expression of the love of Jesus who calls us to follow him. And when we sing our note with others, then we get to make a joyful noise. And this is the joy of playing in a group, isn't it? Of singing with others, of being God's people together. Do you know, when I was about six years old, I, I, many of you know I was brought up in the Salvation Army, and when you're in the Salvation Army and you're six years old, you have to learn to play a brass instrument. You're compelled to. It's part of the deal. And so when I was six years old, I was given a brass instrument, and so I practiced and practiced and practiced this brass instrument, and I, and I learned two notes, and I could play the F and G march, which is, which is very difficult um, when you're little anyway. But then I was, once I was good enough, I was, well, once I was not bad enough, I was able to join the band, you know, the, the children's, the young people's band. And I, I, I was given the part of second baritone. No one's impressed. I'm really disappointed. I thought you'd be really impressed when I said that. I've written it on my notes. They will be impressed when you say that, but they're not. Why aren't you impressed? Because of the word second or baritone. You have no idea what a baritone is, maybe. But it's about this big. And and when you're six years old, it's huge, you know. And the part of second baritone, as you would expect, is not very interesting, okay? You're not a soloist when you play second baritone. You play, you play all the umpa notes, all right? All the offbeat notes. So the bass goes, um, and you go, uh, so it's, um, but, 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 but. You know, that, that's all you do for the whole day. That's all you do. And uh, that was it. And I, I, you know, I, I got a bit fed up with just doing second baritone, to be honest. Even when I was seven, I got fed up. And I thought, how could I get noticed? Because it didn't feel like anybody was noticing my pa. They didn't care about it very much. So I thought, you know what? If I play a few wrong notes, they'll notice me, won't they? And sure enough, the conductor noticed me and looked me in the eye. And, well, I, I won't tell you what he said, but that, that's another story. But, so I thought, oh, I won't do that. Well, perhaps if I play slower than everybody else, they'll notice me. And sure enough, I played slower than everybody else, and they noticed me. And I, I had that look again from him, I'm afraid to say. But it wasn't until someone explained to me that actually the second baritone part was actually crucial to how the music sounded. Without my pa, 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 the music would fall apart. Without me keeping my rhythm solidly, there would be something missing in the overall sound. The piece of music that was written for a second baritone as part of the whole would not be heard and it wouldn't be the piece that it was meant to be. The composer of the piece would feel shortchanged if I didn't play my second baritone part. I don't need to explain my parable to you this morning, do I? Jesus never explained parables apart from one or two, so 
whatever part you're playing, it's crucial that you play it. That you keep your eye on the conductor, because that's how we keep all in time together. The main conductor, the man Jesus. We listen to everyone else, and we play our part to create the harmony and the beauty of the music that we're called when he says, come, follow me. And the world will notice that. Your workplace will notice. Your family will notice. Your neighbors will notice. Neighbors don't like you practicing second baritone, I have to say that, but they'll notice when you get it right. And I think that's why Paul, writing from prison all on his own, can write these words. He's sitting on his own in a six-by-four cell, chained to Roman guards, but he knows he's not alone. He's part of something bigger that's going on. So his call to follow on the road to Damascus was about him becoming part of something that was going to transform the world, but he couldn't do it on his own. He would do it as part of something bigger. So instead of wallowing as to why this has happened to him, I'm... I'd love to think he was serenading the guards, stinging, singing his note to the glory of God, knowing that all around him there will be people singing their note to the glory of God as well. So no wonder chapter 2 is full of encouragement to follow Jesus together, to build the harmony of the church, no matter, no matter what else is happening, to protect it at all costs. To work with intention and purpose so that the choir takes precedence over the soloist and the world hears the music. I've been listening to jazz recently. I really don't understand jazz very much, but I'd love to understand it. And the lovely thing about jazz is that there's always a resolution. No matter how many discords there are, no matter how many times it says, oh, not sure about that one, there's always a place of resolution. So as each jazz musician does their bit, and it is amazing what they do, there's a place where they come to to say, this is it. Paul says, make me smile by having the same mind. And that mind is the mindset of Christ. That's the resolution every single time that we come together to be the church. This is the present and pressing challenge, I believe, for the church in a culture of consumerism that surrounds us. Paul says, be the church. Jesus says, come, follow me. Let's do this together. And together, we'll be able to reflect the very person of Jesus who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, that's the church he longs for us to be. So join in the song. Make it glorious. Make it better because you're participating in it. You're playing your part. Together we declare that Jesus was born in weakness, that he lived in humility, he died in suffering, he rose in power, and he will return in glory. And until then, we are his people together to declare his praises and live for that glory to come.
Maybe you've not started following Jesus. Can you hear his voice that says, come, follow me? Maybe you haven't connected into the life of the church. And you hear his voice today. Come follow me. Get connected. Play your part. Second baritone is fine. It's absolutely fine to play it. But play it and do it for his glory and honor. Let's not have any notes missing. And let's be obedient to the call of Jesus.